I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 27 as we begin. Matthew 27 and verse 33, it reads, the scripture says, as they went out, they found the man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, the cross of Christ. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put, over his head they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, King, the King of the Jews. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you were the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Today we begin a new series for the next few Sundays leading up to Easter Sunday, a series titled, Why the Cross? And for the next four Sundays as we lead up to Holy Week, we'll be explaining and examining the cross and particularly why the cross was necessary and what Jesus accomplished through his death on the cross. Additionally, I want to mention this briefly, um, there is a small journal that is called New Life Rising. It's produced by Christianity Today. It's a fantastic little devotional that walks through the Lent season and the season leading up to Easter, and I'll encourage you to grab one. We actually have a few hundred copies here in person today. Uh, you can grab one for free in the lobby on the table on the way out. Use it for yourself individually. Use it for a discipleship relationship. Use it for date night. Use it for whatever you want to use. Um, but walk through this new life rising um, as we approach um, this uh, season. Each of these um, Sundays, we'll be examining the cross and looking and seeing why the cross is necessary and what it actually accomplishes for us. And today, the title for the sermon is this. Jesus is my propitiation. Jesus is my propitiation, and you were hoping to get a big, long Bible word in today, and you got it. I'm going to be in Romans chapter 3 for our anchor text today, Romans 3, 21 through 26. 
26. Before I jump into that, I'll, I'll set up a little bit of the context for you today of what this um, uh, uh, section of scripture and this text is trying to accomplish. This is the book called Romans, and it's actually a letter. It's a letter to uh, the Roman Christians who are in the city of Rome. It was written by a man named Paul. Paul was the apostle. He was a church planter a couple thousand years ago as the church was expanding and multiplying and growing throughout the entire Greco-Roman world. The apostle Paul would travel to different cities and regions, and he would start churches, and they would see the gospel thrive and flourish there in cities like Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae and Thessalonica and even the region of Galatia. And he would go through preaching the good news of the gospel, and literally thousands of people would give their life to Jesus Christ and join the Jesus movement, the Jesus way, and become a part of the kingdom of God. And as he would go and as he would travel, the Apostle Paul would write letters typically back to the churches and back to the regions where he had started these churches. And typically the reason why he was writing letters was because he was having to clean up some messes. You have to clean up any messes in your life just out of curiosity. And the Apostle Paul would, he'd have to write back to the church. And by the way, by the way, the, the church is a messy place, just by the way. And messy people, broken people, all trying to figure out this thing, which means we, it takes a lot of grace and a lot of forgiveness to do this, by the way. And the Apostle Paul, he would write back to these churches, and he would help them to understand and to reorient what it means to know Jesus and to love Jesus and to live like Jesus in their society and in their culture. And so he would write um, instructional letters back to them to help them understand what it looks like to live this out in their society. Specifically in the book of Rome, in the letter of Rome, Paul is addressing one main question. He's addressing one main issue, one main theme, that if it doesn't get fixed, if it doesn't get resolved, has the tendency and has the potential to actually devastate the church and the movement of God. The issue and the thing that Paul is addressing and that he's writing to is that these believers had come to believe that there were two tiers of humanity, that there were two classifications that were multiple groups of humanity, and because of something of themselves, whether it was their ethnicity, whether it was their religious background, whether it was their adherence to the law or whatever it was, they felt that there were different classifications of people, which meant there were different needs of people in the world, and which meant they were different than other people. It created inferiority, superiority. It created a lot of challenging things in the church, and Paul was writing to rectify and to change this false understanding of their spirituality, that they thought there was something unique about them that granted them a specific kind of righteousness that was different from others around them. The, the challenge here, and I'll mention this throughout our time today, is that um, God's people fell into a, a, a situation. They were victims of spiritual delusion. Do you know what delusion is? You know what, when, when someone is delusional, you know what that means? Don't look at your spouse right now, but if someone is, if someone is delusional, it, it means that they're thinking and they're operating according to something that is actually contrary to reality. Um, it, it means that, that they are living in such a way, they're thinking in such a way, they're functioning in such a way that is actually, um, they're in delusion, that they're actually not operating according to reality. And here, um, here is what happens with, the, this is what happens, it's spiritual delusion, it's spiritual delusions, and they're failing to view themselves rightly, and it's affecting everything around them, and it's affecting, uh, most importantly, the most important spiritual reality in the world, which is the gospel. And because of their spiritual delusion, it actually is impacting the way that they think about the gospel. They think about Christ, think about the cross, think about what Christ has done for 
them, which meant they were unable to understand the gravity and the nature of the cross of Christ. So Paul's going to go to town, and he's going to rewrite this thing and reorder this thing for their thinking. So I'm going I'm to start in Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to re- reference a, a verse here, a few verses in chapter 2, and then I'm going to end up in chapter 3. So here's what the scripture says in Romans chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 18. And by the way, I'm just going to say up front, don't say I didn't warn you, this is a no frou-frou sermon, okay? Look, look at somebody beside you and say no frou-frou. No fruit. This is a no fruit fruit. Okay, so like if you're waiting for the jokes in about three minutes, they're not coming. If you're waiting for all the fun stories, they're not coming. Okay, I'm just going to give you a heads up at the beginning. Here's, here's what it says, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, for the wrath of God. Somebody say wrath. Like when's the last time you even said that? Like, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Somebody say all. He's emphasizing something here, all categories, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Um, Paul, Paul's just beginning. He, he's, go, he's, going to, he's going to level the playing field. Paul, Paul, Paul's going to bring everyone down to the same level. And Paul's saying the wrath of God, the judgment of God, um, the, the consequences of your living, the consequences of your action, that wrath and that judgment is equally applicable to all people and all forms of ungodliness. Remember, they had created tiers of where they were in a different category than other people, and Paul's going to say that actually isn't correct. Jump forward to chapter 2, Romans, Romans 2, beginning in verse 5. He would say this, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. By the way, he's not speaking here to like non-Christians, people outside the church. He's actually writing to believers who have been spiritually deluded and convinced themselves of a false reality of their own life in the gospel. And Paul, Paul says, because of your hard heart, because of what you're actually not understanding, you're storing up wrath. This is the same kind of phrase that Jesus would say, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. It's the same thing. You're actually storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse six, he, God, will render, that word is recompense or reward, he will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. And here's how he's going to break it down. To the Jew first and also the Greek. He's going to say this over and over again. The Jews had put themselves in different categories than other people and thought that they were better and above other people. And they didn't need the same gospel that everybody else needs. To the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek here again. And he says, for God shows no partiality. There's not different tiers. There's not different categories of uh, this, is, this person, they're, they're good people. They're church people. They, they've, been, they've been baptized. Their, their grandma took them to church when they were a kid. And they, they don't cheat on their taxes. They don't cheat on their spouse. And they're really good people. So they need something different than all the other wicked people out there in the world. Paul says that's not how it works. That's not how it works. And then jump with me to chapter three in verse 21. 
This, this paragraph right here that we're getting ready to dive in, Leon Morris, the chief commentator on the entire book of Romans, he says this is possibly the most single greatest uh, important paragraph that's ever been written, not just in the Bible, but in human history. And the father of the Protestant Reformation would say this is the chief point of the entire Bible in this next paragraph. Paul would say this in Romans 3.21, but now... But now the righteousness of God, which means just understanding how to be in right relationship with God, has been manifested, it's been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith, not through being a good person, not through trying harder, not through your own ethnicity or religious background, but through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. See, he's trying to hammer this point. They're in the distinction. They're in different categories of people. You think that you're better than other people, and you're more moral, and you're this, so you need different things than other people need. No, there is no distinction. For all, somebody say all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody falls short. And we like to think that, like, you know, if there's a scale, then, you know, like Mother Teresa, you know, is up here somewhere. And then, you know, Billy Graham, you know, he's, he's right around here. And then Dr. Martin Luther King is kind of right around in here. And then we're not there, but we're kind of like somewhere in the middle. But then it gets like really bad. And then you got like terrorists and then you got Hitler and then you got other people. And like, like man, we, we, we're, we're different than the, no, guess what? That entire list, guess what? Th- that entire scale, they all fall short. Oh, but I'm, I'm not, I don't fall as, I'm not, I'm not as bad, I'm not, no, no, no. You fall short. You fall short of the glory of God. Well, I, I'm better than, I'm better than, I'm, I'm over here, I'm in a, no, 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 no. You fall short. You fall short. Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the point, it's the glory of God. He says this, and are justified by his grace as a gift, not by their good works, not by them cleaning themselves up, but by grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Then here's our key verse for today. Whom God, speaking of Christ, put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received in faith, this was to show God's righteousness, the only way that it could happen, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So let me do this. Let me unpack this. This is an unbelievably hard, difficult, big, weighty thing to try to unpack. The thinking about the wrath of God and the justice of God and how we even so hard in our culture to even come to grips with, with that. It's, it's so um, you know, antithetical to our culture to even think uh, about that. So let, let, me, let me unpack it for you and walk through this. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna give you, based on this text and based on kind of this framework, I'm gonna give you nine statements, <laughs> uh, nine statements, and I made, through all, made it through all of them in the 9 a.m., and we're gonna uh, believe in God for making it through these in the 11. Uh, but I'm gonna make nine statements um, to help us kind of understand why the cross is so important how Jesus is our propitiation. Here's number one. God is both loving and wrathful. 
God is both loving and wrathful. And and, then here's what each of us have a tendency to do is kind of lean one way or the other. I kind of like God if he's loving. I kind of like him if he's gracious. I kind of like him as forgiving. I don't like to think of God as as just or wrathful or or as envious or angry or or any whatever those other kind of categories are. But here's what you have to recognize from the scriptures is that God is both. He's both loving and wrathful. Lamentations 3.22 through 23 would say, the steadfast love, or this Hebrew word hased, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we love to put that on a coffee mug. This is the one that we don't put on the coffee mug. Exodus 32, 9 through 10. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone. That my, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you. God is simultaneously in his character both loving and wrathful. Now let's uh, break that down. Here's number two. Love and wrath are complementary, not contradictory. Uh, complementary means they complement one another. They're complementary. They're actually not contradictory. You, you would think that they would be extremes and they would be opposites and they would be different and they couldn't coexist. But in God's nature, love and wrath actually coexist. They're complementary to one another. And not only are they complementary, um, wrath is actually required to possess love. Like in order to actually say that you love something, there actually has to be the, the um, you actually have to possess wrath against something that would harm the love that you have for that thing. So, so for instance, um, I don't know if any of you have kind of got swept into the, the Murdoch trial um, like me and my wife have. Please don't do that. I would encourage you not to. Um, but just really kind of a crazy, bizarre um, thing that's kind of happened in southern uh, South Carolina, down in the Low Country, and basically, if, if you're not familiar with the story, but kind of generations of prominent this Murdoch family that's extremely prominent, and the way that they have essentially over the generations kind of been above the law and the way that they've operated. In most recent history, it's kind of all come crashing down, and the family is um, just in unbelievable just demise and destruction, and it's absolutely uh, crazy what's happening. Uh, There's a documentary on Netflix that I would not encourage you uh, to read. It's on the Murdoch murders, and my wife and I were watching um, this over the the past week, and in the first episode, there's this tragic story of where um, this young group of teenagers is late one night, um, hanging out at a party, whatever, drinking a unbelievable amount of alcohol. Um, They're incredibly intoxicated, and then they get on a boat, and they go down the intercoastal waterway, and Paul Murdoch, who it's his, his boat, this, this young boy, he's, it's his boat, and he's driving, and he's incredibly intoxicated, and uh, he, he won't give up the steering wheel, and what eventually happens is he drives the boat at full speed into the pylon of a bridge, and one of the girls that's on that boat, a 19-year-old, dies. My wife and I are sitting beside each other as we're kind of like experiencing this, and, and, and it's what we, what we feel, because we've got daughters, and what we feel is we think like, if that happened to one of our girls, if, if she was victim to someone else's impropriety, and if she died because of someone else's actions like that that were at, what it would produce in us, and, and, and it, um, it got a little heated in the Welch living room, by the way. We got, 
the temperature started to rise. It kind of got PG-13 in the pastor's house for just, for just a few minutes. Um, now, there, there's, now the, the, the reason that that exists is because we love our, our girls. We, lo- we love our girls, and if, if something unjustly or evil happened or wicked happened to our girls, we would rightfully have wrath at, in response to that. So if, if, we're, if we're walking out of here today, um, walking out of uh, church, I've got my kids, and one of you just walks by and just wails one of my, my girls in the face. Now, the, 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 the reaction here isn't like, well, you know, like, I just have so much grace for you in my heart for, you know, and, and I, I just said the church is a messy place, and I understand that things aren't perfect, and you know, like, no, if that, if that happens, and if you do that, you're going to experience my wrath. That's, that's what's going to happen. And for me to feel that would actually be the right response of my love to her. If you're with me, say I'm with you. See, they're not contradictory to one another. They're actually complementary to one another. Now, here's, here's number three. I'll say this. Wrath, and specifically speaking of God's wrath, but wrath is the rightful reaction to injustice and evil. There should be wrath. There should be anger in response to injustice and evil. And I love what J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says. He says, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to the objective moral evil. Like you want a God of, of wrath. You want a God in the face of injustice and evil. Says that cannot stand and that is not okay. I even think of the New Testament where the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, 26, he would say, be angry and do not sin. He didn't say don't get angry. That anger sometimes is the necessary emotion and reaction to a situation. The issue isn't the wrath or the anger, it's actually what you do with it. Now for clarity, God is the only one that has full, complete, um, holy indignation and holy wrath against evil and injustice. This isn't, just a, this isn't just a concession so that you could do whatever you want in the face of injustice and evil. You're still called to live and operate in a holy way, but you will feel holy wrath in the face of injustice and evil. I was having a conversation this past week with one of our members, and I was sitting across the table as we were sharing and, 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 and having coffee together, and um, she comes from a, a Jewish family, a Jewish background, and she was recounting for me stories of anti-Semitism in her life. And she was telling me kind of what, it, what it's like, and, and it was helpful for me to, to hear, because I've, I've heard some, but to hear her story was super helpful for me to kind of hear, and as she was talking, I, I began to feel what she was feeling. I, I began to, to feel the things that she was saying, and then she would even go on to tell the story of her grandparents who were from Russia, and this was you know, upwards of 100 years ago or so when they lived in, in Russia, and this is crazy. Christians at Easter in Russia would leave on Easter Sunday and go and murder and rape Jews in their hometown, and I just, I felt, I felt anger towards that. I felt wrath towards that, and that's the right response to injustice and evil. It's, it's the rightful reaction to something that is gross and injustice and wicked. Here's number four. Justice demands that wrongs be punished. Justice demands that wrongs be punished. Psalm 9, 7 through 8 says, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice 
and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. An upright person and a righteous person isn't someone who doesn't judge. It's someone who judges rightly when things are wrong and things are off. The scriptures would even say in Romans chapter three that the wages of sin is death. That the right response to sin, the right reaction, the right punishment for sin is actually death. And it's a good thing to know and to believe that God does not turn a blind eye to injustice. And even there's the scripture that says, God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Which is a good truth. It's a good truth in a world that's full of evil and injustice, especially if you're um, marginalized, especially if you have experienced marginalization because of your race, because of your ethnicity, because of a gender, because of a generational thing, or because of a religious thing, whatever. If you've experienced that, it's good to hold on to the truth and the reality that God will get ultimate vengeance in the end. He will judge rightly injustice. No injustice and evil will ever go unpunished because God will execute justice in the end if it doesn't happen before. That justice demands that wrongs be unpunished. Here's number five. All humanity is the object of God's wrath. All humanity is the object of God's wrath. And this is what these Roman Christians don't understand. They're not understanding clearly how they are actually objects of God's wrath. So Paul would make it as clear as possible in Romans 3, verse 9 through 12. He would say, what then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Spiritual delusion is when you think you are the one that actually doesn't deserve the wrath of God. That's spiritual delusion. Because of your sin and because of your actions and because of your insurrection against the most high God of the world, you are an object of God's wrath. And see, many people don't have a problem with the wrath of God until it's applied to them. You're okay with God taking care of Hitler. You're okay with God taking care of the terrorist. But when God's wrath is on you, then it's a different story. The, the wrath of God is on you. And each of us have the capacity to become delusional where, where we have the ability to convince ourselves of that which is false. So hear me clearly today, as a pastoral prophetic messenger to you, uh, beware of the delusion of relativism. It doesn't matter, you're fine, you live the way that you wanna live, you pursue the path that you wanna path, you climb your path, I'll climb my path, they're all the same mountain, we'll all end up at the same place at the end of the day. That's delusion, that's false teaching. That's actually not true. And, and Paul says you can't think like that, so don't formulate your beliefs around your feelings, formulate your beliefs on the truth. Don't anchor your beliefs in individual reasoning or emotional receptivity or societal approval because that will always lead you into the wrong way. Well, but I, I, just, I just can't mentally um, reckon with a God who would like shift your reckoning to the truth of who God is. Well, in my own spirit, I just can't feel like God will shift your, reckon your spirit, your emotion to the truth and the reality of what, well, Ethan, in our society, that's kind of harsh and that's kind of this, that's kind of reckon your feelings and your beliefs and the society's thinking to the truth of God, not the other way around. Do not be delusional. And if you think you are not deserving of God's wrath, 
And if you do not receive his salvation, that one thought will send you to hell. It's not like that bad people go to hell and wicked people go to hell and terrorists go to hell. No, the people that go to hell are the people that refuse God's salvation and don't recognize his wrath on, on their life. And if you don't believe or if you believe that you don't need God, his love, his grace, and forgiveness, then he will actually grant you that belief. C.S. Lewis says it this way, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. It's important that we recognize that, yes, we all are objects of God's wrath because of our sin, but the good, good news doesn't end there. Here's number six, thank God. Number six, all humanity is the object of God's love. All humanity is the object of God's love, and that, yes, we were deserving of punishment and, and death because of our sin and because of our actions towards God, that he is also a God who is loving and he cares for us and he's compassionate and he actually cares about every single individual. He cares about every single person in the room today. He, he cares about you and I love the, the famous passage, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And yes, you are an object of his wrath, but you are also an object of his love, that he cares for you, that he has compassion for you, that he, that he, he desires you, every single person. Now, here's number seven. If you don't grasp the magnitude of God's wrath, you won't grasp the magnitude of God's love. If you don't grasp the magnitude of his wrath, you won't grasp the magnitude of his love. Failing to grasp his wrath will produce a failure to grasp his, his love. And you'll never appreciate the love of God without a recognition of the wrath of God. If you don't recognize of what you're deserving, then the cross isn't good news. The blood of Jesus isn't good news if you didn't feel like you needed it. If there wasn't anything for you to be saved from. But when you understand your own reality and what you deserve as an object of God's wrath, it allows you to um, feel and experience and to be grateful and to be overwhelmed for God's love through Christ in your place. Here's number eight. The story of the Bible is not about condemnation, but invitation. That's the story of the Bible. That's the thrust of the Bible. The thrust of the Bible isn't a mad, angry God who doesn't want you to have fun in your life. The thrust of the Bible is an invitation from God bringing you in, inviting you into a kind of living and a kind of understanding that is what you were designed to do. He, he's invitational. He, it's, it's, it's not that he's, he's, he's condemnational. He's invitational. John 3.17, the very next verse after John 3.16 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So if you don't hear me say, hear, say anything else today and you hear, hear about sin and wrath and judgment and all these kinds of things, hear this. The heart of God is not condemnation but invitation. God's heart is, is invitation. He's inviting you into a new way of living. And then here's number nine, the end. Somebody say, we made it. Amen. Number nine. You gotta smile on these sermons, okay? Number nine. On the cross, Jesus took the wrath of God for us. That's why the cross is necessary.
That's why the cross is necessary. The, the text said today that, that God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. Through the blood of Christ, um, Christ uh, propitiated the wrath of God. He, he satisfied the justice and the wrath of God, and the way that he did that was by taking the wrath on himself. So you could say this in a couple different ways. God's wrath was averted. To avert something means to, to turn away. God's wrath was averted from you and me. It was turned away from you and me, but it was not just averted, it was diverted. It was redirected, it was rerouted. God's wrath was still there, but it was rerouted and redirected away from you onto Christ. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would be praying hours before his death, and as Jesus was in the garden, the text text says that his his body, he was under so much pressure, and he was under so much anguish that his, his, his capillaries and his blood actually began to burst, and he would sweat drops of blood. And as Jesus in those final hours was sitting in the garden of Gethsemane, he would pray to the Father, let this cup pass from me. What was the cup? It was a metaphor. What did the cup represent? It's the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus was saying, is there any other way? Is there any other way? Do I have to drink the cup of wrath for mankind? And the answer was yes. Let me... Let me answer one final question. You may have thought this, and I've thought this, but why doesn't God, like, why the cross? Like, what's the big deal? Like, I mean, it seems a little extreme. It seems a little over the top. I mean, Jesus died. I mean, come on. Isn't there, like, an easier way? Couldn't God just wave the wand of forgiveness, and we all be like, oh, yeah, we're good. Everybody go back to their business. We're fine now. The, the reason why God just couldn't wave some kind of wand of forgiveness and we'd all be good to go is because that forgiveness, at least real forgiveness, there's always a price to be paid. In forgiveness, there's always suffering present. There's always some kind of price that has to be paid. So for instance, uh, let's say I'll let you borrow my truck. I've got an old 1971 um, Chevrolet C10 pickup truck and First of all, I'd never let you borrow it. But let's just say theoretically that, um, let's just say theoretically I let you borrow the truck. Hey, Pastor Ethan, I, you know, I got this piece of furniture. I bought this, bought this couch, and I mean, it's got a long bed. It's an eight-foot bed. They don't make them like that anymore. It's got this long bed. I could have borrowed it. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Here's the keys. Take, take the truck. And yeah, you're fine. Then you call, you call me a, a, an hour later and say, Pastor Ethan, I'm really, really, really sorry. I hate to tell you this, but I was texting on my phone as I was driving in your pickup truck and I rammed into the back of somebody and now the entire front bumper, the front grill, the hood, the quarter panels, I mean, it's just all a disaster. Now at that point, I have a decision to make. Will I be pastoral? Um, uh, the answer is no, I won't. You're gonna pay for the truck to get it. Um, just, just if we're ever there, okay, just for clarity, if we're ever there, that's what's gonna happen. I see Tim in the back. He understands what that's like. Um, and now here, here's, if, if in that moment, and you say, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry, I wrecked your, let's just say I forgave you. And I said, you know what? It's okay. I forgive you. Don't worry about it. What I'm saying when I forgive you is that you don't have to repair it. You don't have to pay for the repairs. I'll pay for the repairs. 
For, forgiveness is not some kind of magic wand that removes all consequences and suffering. Forgiveness says that I'm willing to take on the suffering. I'm, I'm willing to take um, it on. And on the cross, Jesus, by forgiving you, absorbed the suffering onto himself, takes on the sin onto himself. He absorbs it for our sake. And one final little encouragement, Matthew 27, 40, what I read this morning, a little earlier, this thought came to me as I was thinking about this. They, they said this, they're deriding Jesus, they're scoffing at him, they're, they're mocking at him. He, he's literally hanging on the cross about to lose his life. And they say, if you were the son of God, come down from the cross. Now here's the reality. Jesus is the son of God. In that moment, in that instance, he could have called 10,000 legion of angels to change the environment, to change the circumstances and to take himself off the cross. Why didn't he? The reason why was because if he came down from the cross, that would mean you would have to go up on it. And Jesus, in all of his power, in all of his greatness, with unbelievable power and strength, decided to stay and to hang there until his very last breath so that you would not have this is the great difference between the gospel and religion. In every other religion in the world, it's about what you must sacrifice in order to appease your God. In the gospel, it's different. It's that God actually sacrificed himself for you. And the only way that you can receive that is through faith. Well, I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm, God picked me. I, I'm, a, I'm a moral. I'm better than all those. No. For all have sinned fallen short of the glory of God. The only response is faith. The only response is faith. Jesus is our propitiation.